Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Memory Lane. I'm your host, Noah Hiles, and joining us this week is... I, I don't even want to call him a baseball player. I want to call him the most interesting man on earth. His name is Ross Ollendorf, former pitcher of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Ross, how are you doing today? Good. Yeah, thanks for that great introduction, Noah. I, I try, I try. So, Ross... <laughs> There's a lot to get into here, and while you had an interesting baseball career, uh, I think that you would agree that baseball is just one thing that defines one of many things that defines you. So I kind of want to cover a, a wide range of topics, um, and I guess we'll start with your college background. Uh, there, there are a lot of guys who just skip college altogether in the baseball world. They get drafted out of high school or they come from Latin America or wherever. Uh, you, on the other hand, took a different path. You were a Princeton graduate. Uh, well, you've graduated from Princeton, correct? Correct. Okay. So I just want to start there. Uh, take me through your recruitment. Were you considering or getting recruited by other Ivy League schools? Did Princeton Was Princeton just a rare offer for you? How did you end up choosing to, uh, to play baseball at Princeton? Well, I guess the kind of long story is I was more of a basketball player in high school, and um, I was recruited. I get, one of the first recruiting letters I got was from Harvard for basketball. Um, I didn't play much baseball in high school. I played, so I, if, I wasn't good enough to have signed out of high school, so that's part of it too. But if I'd been Andrew McCutcheon, maybe it would have been a little different. But um, <laughs> But I was more of a basketball player. I didn't really focus on baseball till the summer after my junior year. Uh, Keith Moreland, who'd played in the majors for a long time, came to my high school and um, as our coach and convinced me that I should focus on baseball, that I had a chance to play professionally. In basketball, I would have um, I think I would have been a marginal college basketball player, wouldn't have been able to play beyond that. So thanks to him coming and both improving me as a player, but also giving me the uh, confidence that I could play not only in college, but also professionally, if things went well, I decided to start focusing on baseball. So I was late to the party in terms of playing summer baseball, getting recruited. And I went with my mom, my spring break of junior year to look at Ivy league schools. I knew I had always enjoyed school and done well in school. And I knew that I'd, uh, probably wanted to go to an Ivy League school or maybe Stanford. Um, and so my mom took me to look at them. I really liked Princeton. And I ended up reaching out to the Princeton baseball coach, Scott Bradley, and trying to tell him that I was interested in playing. I also reached out to the basketball coach. but I, uh, So I kind of reached out to them, didn't hear back from him initially. And then the summer after my junior year, I had some tournaments where I threw really hard and I hit some pretty far home runs. And so there started to be a little bit of buzz about me. And and then Coach Bradley reached out to me after that, but he had ignored my kind of note I left uh, for him when I was there. But it, I, I really it was such a blessing for me to be able to go to Princeton, um, not only from the kind of academic side of it, um, and also the the network side from from having gone there, but but Coach Bradley really helped me a lot while I was there to develop as a as a pitcher. Um, I was really raw coming out of high school, and my freshman year of college, all of a sudden I I went from someone who threw hard to to actually being a fairly good pitcher, and he he had worked so much with me that first uh, I guess the first six months I was on campus to get me ready for that first season. So you said you got a late start on the whole recruitment process and development as a pitcher. 
Um, what kind of pitch? What was your pitching style like in high school? Were you throwing multiple pitches, or were you just a guy who got by on you know having a really good arm? <laughs> so my off-speed pitch was to throw a sidearm fastball. So I, I was I was really wrong. I I tried throwing a curveball. It was just it was so inconsistent that I ended up going with just the sidearm fastball when I'd get to two strikes or to give them a different look. But um, it was it was going back, it would be pretty funny to watch the way I pitched. I mean, I'd, I'd pitch in the low nineties and get three Oh on somebody and throw one at 82 miles an hour, just to try to get a strike. It was, I had no idea what I was doing. It worked. I mean, yeah, it ended up getting you a nice living out of it. Yeah. So well, I, yeah, I was fortunate to that people believe that I could improve and then help me improve. That was, I could have easily been kind of just pushed to the side, but it, if it was really coach Moreland coming, convinced me that I um, could play in college and getting people interested in me. And then Coach Bradley believing in me and, and helping me improve. Now, I saw your younger brother also pitched at uh, Princeton. Um, did do you guys have a family? Like, was your dad a college baseball player as well? Or where where did the pitching gene come from, I guess? Um, I had uncles that played. My mom's brother played baseball at AM a little bit. My dad's brother was um, – played football in college. He was co-captain of the Junction Boys team that ESPN did an article on or yeah. moved on at one point. So there was some athletic ability in our family. Um, but I'm the only one that, that pitched. My brother was actually, I think my brother would have been better than me. I, he, I don't know if he threw as hard and would have played as long, um, but he was much more polished and much, a much better pitcher in high school. And he hurt his shoulder diving into second base and was never able to to throw quite the same. So he, he did play at Princeton. He pitched a little bit, but he, he had to throw sidearm um, for it to not hurt every time. And um, so it would have been interesting to see how he had done if, if he hadn't gotten hurt. So at Princeton, uh, you had, you had a 3.75 grade point average and you had a very interesting senior thesis that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I don't have the exact name, uh, but to paraphrase it, it was basically, correct me if I'm wrong, it was a study on the return of investment on uh, signing bonuses in the MLB that's, draft. Is that right? That's right. So what what made you want to do your senior thesis on this, and how did you kind of you know, give us the Spark Notes version? I, I read an article where you tried to explain it to Paul Mulholland, <laughs> and it was like overwhelming for him. So give us the same version that you explained it, how you explained it to Paul Mulholland. So, uh, so the, the way I got interested in it was I, I took off my senior spring and, um, and played baseball. I was drafted by the Diamondbacks, played in short season in South Bend. And throughout that season, I, was, was, um, I knew that I wanted to do something with baseball. And I was reading a bunch of books, trying to come up with ideas that might be kind of unique. And, um, and I, everybody on the team was talking – I mean, the draft was such a big – topic especially when in that june draft came up when the the class behind us was getting drafted and people often would say that first rounders got paid too much and and uh, that they should spread the money out more evenly and things like that so it was a very relevant topic and so what i what i looked at when when a team drafts a player when, when a team has a young player on their major league roster the first typically a, a, about three years, it's, it's sometimes less than three years, that player makes the league minimum, regardless of how good they are. Mm -hmm. And then they go through the arbitration process where they will make less than a comparable free agent. So the team, by drafting a player, hopes 
that that player will develop into a major league quality player that's getting paid at this lower salary. So I looked at the top 100 draft picks over five years. I looked at their signing bonus, and then I looked at how well they performed in their first six years in the majors and how their salary, depressed salaries compared to the salaries teams would have had to pay free agents for similar performance. And so that was seen as a savings that the teams got from having drafted them. And I compared that amount to the signing bonuses. Um, And for there were some draft picks where it was just tremendous for the team. Um, I mean, there've been a lot of recent players. When I was with the, the Pirates, Andrew McCutcheon and Neil Walker were both really good, especially Andrew, really, really good early in his career. He was making the league minimum or at least close to it and in playing as well as most high dollar free agents. That was a huge savings for the Pirates. They got a lot of talent at a, at a, a lot of production at a, at a low salary. The reason they were able to do that was because they had drafted him and, and paid him a signing bonus. He was a, a great return um, to the Pirates. There, there've been other players where their signing bonus exceeded the, the amount the team ended up getting from him later on. But, um, but in general, the signing it, on average, uh, teams do very well in, in the draft system, which you would expect because the players only have one team to sign with. Yeah. What, what teams in your study were doing the best, if you remember? And I'm sure that's changed maybe, but I'm interested to yeah. see if it's the same way now. Yeah, I, I'm really not sure. I know some players that stood out were Frank – like Frank Thomas stood out as one who, who did really well. Um, I looked at the teams at the time, but it was it's such a small sample that it's mm-hmm. hard to say. I think where teams really separate themselves – I mean, the, drafting well at the top is, is really important. But getting good players later on to pass the top 100 picks, that's where I think teams can differentiate themselves more. Um, often the, it's pretty um, – most teams agree on who the best players are. It's those players later on where there's can be more difference of opinion. So, And that was something I didn't look at at all. But I think that's that's where a lot of scouting directors can set, set themselves apart. But the other component of it, there's, there's – um, there's drafting and there's developing as the other component. Um, and I know the Pirates, when I was in Pittsburgh, the Pirates were really making an effort to change their development system and take it very seriously. And it seemed like just based on the success that they had with young players who they had drafted, the way they were develop, were able to develop them, it seemed like they were doing some good things. It's it's changed a little bit since you've left, but now that's that's actually their very big uh, focus this offseason, ironically enough, is talking okay. about improving development. Were you a big sabermetrics guy? Uh or or Bill James did you read any Bill James stuff in college? Um, just when this? I was just when I was trying to figure out what to do on the thesis. And it and what I used for my thesis was wind shares. They're now much more advanced uh, mm-hmm. metrics, but that that was wind shares was kind of the the one and only thing at the time. And I modified them in a way to where what I, what I ended up doing with them is probably similar to um, the wind shares above replacement. Um, But I, I did, I didn't just use wind shares. I kind of, I treated, well, I just used wind shares, but I treated players with, um, with a small number of wind shares differently than, than the better players. So I didn't, it wasn't just a straight linear, every wind share is worth the same amount. It, it depended on, 
if they were getting just a few or if they were getting a bunch. Um, but I, I did not, I didn't, um, I guess I don't keep up with the high level stats as much anymore as, as much. Yes. Yeah. I, I did it for that thesis, but, um, like when I played, I, I, I didn't spend, I try not to spend a lot of time worrying about my stats. It works for some people and it can be distracting for others. And I was one where I felt like it could be distracting. So you wouldn't have an interest working in maybe like a front office as an analytics guy at all? I would, but not today. Not today. <laughs> but it is, it is something, uh, it is something that I'm interested in. And I did, when I first retired from playing, I did some consulting with a high tech company in Austin. We worked with an MLB team and an NFL team, helping them on the draft, um, helping them evaluate, evaluate, player makeup and personalities and seeing if we could um, add to what they were already doing. Cause that's, that's one thing that's really hard to um, really hard to, to evaluate and especially evaluate in a way that you can kind of plug it into an algorithm where you can quantify it and plug it into an algorithm. Um, but player makeup is so important and it's something that where you can, you can develop um develop it in your system and it, it can be related to the culture that you create, but it's, um, it's just something that's so important. I know I've already mentioned Andrew McCutcheon, but he, he, in addition to being really talented physically had a, just such a good makeup. I felt like, um, he really, he wanted to be great. He was willing to put in the work, but he also, um, I felt was a really good leader and fit in well with the team and enhanced the team and it kind of enhanced the culture of the team. Um, not all great players do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I felt like he did. And those, those qualities um, are really important, but they're really hard to um, really hard to evaluate. And so we, we were working with some teams to, to help them evaluate that. Um, and, and I felt like we did an okay job. It's, it's something, the way we were doing it, we need a lot of data. And, um, the company that I was working with had, had other things, other, they work in other industries. And so we did, we worked with these teams and, um, but we just all in the end had, I guess, other uses of our time, but it is, I do have an interest in doing something in baseball at some point right now. The main thing I do is, um, I do color commentary for the Round Rock Express uh, about once a month. So that's the okay. AAA team right right here close to Austin. So you're into broadcasting. I, I, I didn't know that. That didn't show up in any of my preparation. <laughs> uh, a lot of the other stuff that I know about you, um, which we can get into now, is you st are you still helping out on your family's ranch? Yeah, so it's mainly my dad and I that do it. Um, mm -hmm. My brother was involved early on. He's working in Dallas now. My wife helps. And now I have two little kids. I have a two-year-old, three-year-old. So they – they have started uh, assisting where they can, which is they, they'll help call the cat. They just yell when we call the cows up. Um, but I, that's, I really enjoy that. So I've been, especially right now with the pandemic, I, I was doing some other things in Austin part of the week and then, and going out to, to the ranch um, three or four days a week, typically. Uh, but now I've been going out more like five or six. Um, Cause there aren't, there, we have a lot going on out there and there's, there aren't as many, the other things I've been doing have, have kind of, they're just, it's harder to do them with, with the social distancing and everything. So for those who don't know, your family has a, a ranch that, how many 
cattle would you say there are 300 is what i saw yes yeah it's, it's more if you include calves it's it's more it's like 450 or so um so when and you raise the longhorn like the texas longhorn. longhorn that's right so they're all registered texas longhorns um we actually just got nominated for breeder of the year which was is exciting so we got we found that out last week um and we won an award a couple years ago called the movers and shakers award for registering and selling the most um so we've been it's I mean, it's, it's bigger in Texas than other parts of the country, but we've sold to uh, Mexico and Colombia. We've sold to over 20 states. So it's, we have kind of a, I guess, an international presence, but um, but more people raise Longhorns in Texas and Oklahoma than other places. But we, we are, um, within the Longhorn industry, we're, we're one of the bigger, I guess, bigger players or just bigger operations. And also um, we do a lot of marketing and, and people tend to like our cows. And so it, uh, it's something, it, it, there's plenty to keep me busy with that. Um, and my dad's 75 and, and still doing it. And so it's something that he and I can do together. Um, and it's fun for the kids too, right now to, to get to go out there. And how long have you guys been doing this? It's been a couple decades, right? Yes. 25 years. So our, our, uh, my, I think I'm the sixth generation from when our family came over from Germany that has been in Texas agriculture. So the first ones came over in the 1830s um, and then settled the area where we are now in around 1870. So it's, we've been, the kind of Texas agriculture has been in our blood for a really long time. The Longhorns we've had for, since 1995. Um, so that was my dad's idea. He wanted to do it and um, we've just expanded a lot. <laughs> and have uh, you guys ever had like a bevo in there or anything like that have you ever got anyone to be the mascot there or a texas have, or no um we haven't the so when Be bevo died a few years ago and they got a new one mm -hmm. someone who so we don't halter train ours or, or get them in a position where they would would make a good bevo just in terms of the um making being it simple enough and everything and yes being around the people but we had there was one that we had sold to somebody and he was trying to get him to be the Bevo. So it was one that we had raised and, and sold as a calf and he was making videos where he was shooting shotguns around him and just to show that he would stay calm with the can. Cause every time UT scores, mm -hmm. the cannon goes off. Um, but they, uh, they went, the same family has had the last three and they do a really good job. Just, I mean, there's so much that goes into, to, I guess, owning Bevo. They, they do so much for the university with fundraisers and just taking care of them every weekend, um, making their ranch available. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it. The family that does it does an incredible job. So as long as they're doing it, I don't think UT should go with anybody else, but yeah. maybe down the road, we would, we would raise one. We'll see. Well, what happened the one time, I think it was at the sugar bowl a couple years ago when Bebo yeah. tried to attack <laughs> Ugga. What, what would you have done in that situation? How do you calm down a longhorn when they're like that? Yeah, I mean, you got to just get the dog away. They'll, they'll, they will. If when if the dog leaves, they'll calm down pretty quickly. Not all Longhorns will do that, but there are some that do. Um, I guess what we we don't take dogs out there, but but we have, and we might have twenty five cows around it, and only one or two will notice the dog, but they'll go right after it, and the others really? the others won't really care. Um, but he evidently he cared. Yeah, that was. That was interesting. That was a good way to start the game. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it was an omen too. Like yeah, if, well, if you were a gambler and you didn't bet your, uh, your life savings on Texas and that one, you were nuts. You're right. That's right. Um, 
So let's get into your MLB career now. Uh, you make your big league debut in 2007 with the Yankees, and there were some big names on that team. One, a guy that was my favorite player growing up, Derek Jeter, was on that team. Obviously, Alex Rodriguez, I think, was the American League MVP that season. What was it like making – I mean, a lot of guys I've talked to, they made their big league debut in Pittsburgh when – it, things weren't necessarily as glamorous as they were in the t- in the tw- in the two thousands in the Bronx. What was it like, you know, starting your big league career on a team full of Hall of Famers? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty incredible, and it was. I'd say it was intimidating. I think anytime you make your debut, it's intimidating, but but that probably was more so. However, they everybody was, all the older guys on that team were very good about making young guys feel welcome. Very good about it. Um, they really encouraged me. So it was intimidating, but I also felt, um, I felt probably as comfortable as I could have. But I mean, when I look back on my career, it's just, it's kind of, it's amazing that I got that opportunity to, to play with those guys. Mariano Rivera, who's just unbelievable pitcher and just such a great person too, spent so much time with me trying to help me work on my sinker. When I the second season I was there, I was on the team the first three months, and about two months in I started struggling. And he would get down and catch flat grounds with me. Like he really wanted me to to get better. And I mean, to I I never I saw people trying to help their teammates often throughout my career, but never to that extent. Never to the extent that he he tried to help. But th- there was such a culture um, of winning there and just being excellent. Um, and a lot of it came from Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, the guys who had been there a long time. And then the, I mean, the other veteran players that they signed, I think they signed, they did, were selective about who they signed and that they signed guys who not only were very good, but also cared about the team. So it was, it was such an incredible experience. Um, and I mean, we'd go on the road, the games would be sold out and it would be, depending on where we were, it'd be other than Boston, it would be at mm-hmm. least 50% Yankees fans. Um, and it was just, I mean, it was such a cool thing to get to do. Pittsburgh was a, a better place for me to get to develop as a pitcher yeah, um, and get more opportunities. But the memories from, from the Yankees were, were really cool. I mean, you talked about how you had Mariano Rivera sitting next to you in the bullpen uh, and then you get called in the game, and more often than not, the guy who's probably catching for you is a borderline Hall of Famer in Posada as well. So that's that's yeah. <laughs> got to be huge for you. I, I mean, that's just – I just think – I mean, I had all their posters growing. I mean, Hideki Matsui, Jason Giambi. I mean, that, that was a loaded team. So that's yeah. – and yeah. the way you got to the Yankees is interesting as well. You were tr- you were a part of a Randy Johnson trade. Is it is it – a little gratifying maybe when you think about, wow, they, they were willing to give up one of the best pitchers in the world or really ever for me. Is that, is that a little feather in your cap there? Yeah, I know. It's cool. It's cool. I, I guess in the situation, I think the Yankees were ready to get rid of him. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so it, uh, but it is, it is really cool. And my, my college coach uh, caught one of his no hitters. And so that Scott Bradley had, it was really good friends with him. And so that, um, that kind of that made it extra cool too, but yeah, it, I mean, when I, I, it doesn't come up that often, but when I tell people, they, they definitely think it's cool. Um, 
And one thing that was really neat about that trade, I had, uh, when I was with the Diamondbacks, I had, I was there for two and a half years and I had the same roommate the whole time. And he was one of the four or three other players that was traded with me. So anyway, he, he ended up playing, his name was Steven Jackson. He played with the Pirates. He, Steven played eight years of professional baseball and we got to play together through three different organizations on all those teams and, um, and usually room together, but that, that made getting trade, getting traded the first time can be kind of rough, but him, him going with me made it so much easier. We're going to get right back to my conversation with Ross Ollendorf, but first a word from our sponsors. So you get dealt again uh, in 08, correct? Yes. To the Pittsburgh Pirates. You come uh, You come here to the North Shore with Jeff Karstens, Daniel McCutcheon, and a guy that I really want to hear about, Jose Tabata. What was your relationship? What Do you have any memories or stories about Jose Tabata? Because I, I look back at him as one of the more interesting guys in recent Pirates history. I guess not too many. He was younger than me. We did play together some. Um, I know the Yankees were so big on him. I think he was our number two prospect when he got traded, something like that. Um, but I guess I don't. I don't have. I don't have too many. I have some stories about Daniel McCutcheon. He's still one of my good friends. All right, he's what do you just, got on him? Well, he's just. He's such a good athlete. So he. We. Uh, well, one thing he had the what I consider the best pitching performance I ever saw. We were playing the Braves. Um, I already in, know the game in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it was I think we went to it might have been eighteen innings. Yep. So he was down that day. He had pitched a lot in the, the few days prior to that. wasn't supposed to pitch at all. They told him to put his turfs on. Well, they ended up we ended up running out of pitching probably in the twelfth. So they told him to go ahead and get his cleats on. He went in the game and he pitched parts of six innings. Didn't give up a run until the umpire blew a call at the end. I mean, it was just – the guy was was clearly out. The umpire called him safe and we lost. But just the, the fact that he wasn't supposed to pitch that day and he went in and just the, the heart that he had in that game was unbelievable. And just, I mean, it was it was incredible to watch. Um, but the other thing, he is, he is really fast. So that game, he almost beat out two ground balls, if I remember right, to first. And – but his athleticism is unbelievable. So there was a game uh, probably the year before. This was probably 2009, maybe 2010, that where he started. I think we were playing the Brewers in Pittsburgh. And so uh, he ended up getting hit. He was batting. He got hit. He stole second base just on his own. Didn't have a sign. He was just he was upset and stole second. So the next day, Andrew McCutcheon had also stolen second in that game. The next day, we got the, the stopwatch out and went and watched on video. And from the time the pitcher broke his hands till Andrew McCutcheon slid into second base was 3.3 seconds. And when Daniel did it on his steal, he was 3.0 seconds. So he, he was – and he also – supposedly he was faster than Adrian Peterson in college. They both went to OU. Um, but he – I mean, it's amazing that he he pitched instead of playing the outfield or something. But he's such such a good athlete. Um, but he, he was one that I – was really good friends with at the time and Carson's I was too. Um, and then Daniel lives, lives close by. And so we still, still see him. 
That's funny. I, I didn't I don't remember the stolen base thing, but that's I remember hearing about how he was a good athlete. And to talk about that that game, that's the Jerry Meals game is what it's known yes, as back right. here. Yes. Um I actually saw Jerry this season uh in the parking lot, the media parking lot where he was umpiring a game in Pittsburgh. I think he's from Western Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, we like walked in the stadium together. I wanted to say something because I remember watching <laughs> that entire game. I was in high school and I was going fishing the next morning with my grandfather and my cousins. Okay. We were getting up at like 6 a.m. And that game didn't end until probably what, 2 33 yeah, in the morning? And yeah, so like when, and I was at my grandfather's house and everything, and he went to bed at like 11. And then he woke up. Okay. He's like, who ended up winning the game? I'm like, let's just go. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that was so a, disappointing. It, it, he probably Jerry Mills probably saved uh, saved Daniel's arm by by ending the game, but because yeah. I think he would have been going back out the next inning. But that was, I mean, I saw a lot of good pitching performances over my career, but that was that was the one to me that was the most impressive. Yeah, I mean that's it's a good selection. So you uh, were the fortieth. Speaking of impressive performances, you're the fortieth pitcher in MLB history to strike out three batters on nine pitches and an immaculate inning. Um, and what's rare about this, I watched it. All three of your uh, third strikes were, were bounces. Yes. Uh, were, were you feeling yourself that? Cause that was later <laughs> in the inning or was that just kind of giving it anything you had at that point? Yeah. And think, it was just working for you. I think that was the seventh inning. So it was, mm-hmm. it was towards the end. Um, so I just had, I had a really good breaking ball that day and when it was on, it was throughout my career. There were times where I had a really good slider, but it just, if it had been consistent, I think I would have been a lot, much better pitcher. It just, it, it wasn't something that was real consistent for me, but that game, it was really working. Um, so that inning, I threw one fastball and eight sliders and all three strike threes were bounced. But when it was on, I could throw that slider. I could bounce it and, and guys swung often. And luckily, Doman did a great job blocking them all and throwing them first. So I, I realized, I think when I got to strike two on the second batter, I, I started thinking about the chance to, to strike out the side on nine pitches. I didn't realize how rare it was until after the game when, when the uh, media were asking me about it. Um, but I should have asked Stephen Pierce to, uh, to save the ball, to give me the ball afterwards. But he, he came running in from first base and threw it in the stands. Uh, but I, I should have asked <laughs> – should have asked him to, to save it. But that, I mean, I, Doma was a huge part of that, me being able to, I guess, get that immaculate inning with – because any of those, if he doesn't block them and throw them to first, they weren't easy blocks either. If he doesn't do that and throw it to first, guy gets on, it, I not don't have an immaculate inning. So that was that was big that he was able to do that. Yeah, and I mean, all three of the – like one of them was like way behind, like the bounce got behind him, and it was like a kind of a close play. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was a yeah, team. I think, and I think the runner took his time getting started too. I think. <laughs> but yeah, but, hey, it counts, you know, fortieth yeah. ever. So you have a really good first full season in Pittsburgh. You go eleven and ten, had an ERA just under four, um, and then the next year, two thousand ten, earned run average of four oh seven, pretty solid. Uh, but the record one and eleven. How frustrating was that? Where, you know. The argument, I mean, old school baseball fans are they overemphasize wins and everything, where all your other numbers were pretty solid. It's just yeah. you didn't get a lot of luck in the result column. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was a frustrating season. The so 
the two goals that I had going in each game were to, to pitch deep into the game and get a win. Um, and so obviously that only happened once that year. Um, so it, it, it was frustrating as, as we were going through the season, kind of each start I had was just, was a new start. I, I was pitching, especially the second half of that season. I pitched very well. The first half I was, didn't get off to a great start. It was kind of up and down, but the second half of the season, both in 2009 and 2010, I, I pitched very well. Um, so each time I was going, as, as I was going through it, especially that second half, each time I was going out, I felt very good about our chance of getting a win. Um, it just wasn't happening. So it, it uh, and then I ended up getting hurt at the end of the season too. So it, I, I guess I, I enjoyed probably the season before a little more. <laughs> yeah. You think so that, that shoulder injury occurs um, would would it be fair to say that you weren't necessarily the same kind of pitcher after the shoulder injury? Did that really change your alter your career, or do you think you fully recovered from it? Um, it it came and went. I would say um, I, I had the exact same injury several other times. Is um, every few years it kind of came back. So there were times whenever it would would really get get hurt. Um, it would take me a while to get the life back on my pitches and then I would pitch pretty well for a little while and then I'd get hurt again it's, it's kind of that's kind of how how it felt so um I think most people deal with some sort of injury it, it certainly could have been worse but uh if I hadn't had that injury I think I would have had a better career but um but it's not I was not in an unusual position to have to deal with some injuries um, and I generally, I didn't, I never had surgery. Um, so I, I didn't have to deal with, with the injuries that some people do, but that's, that's part of, I mean, I didn't play forever, but I played a decent amount of time. Some of it is being able to come back from those injuries. Charlie Morton's been one of the best about that. I mean, he, he, so he, the two really good friends I still have are Charlie and Daniel McCutcheon that I still keep up with regularly. Um, but Charlie's just, I mean, such an inspiration with the way that he, has improved later in his career and gotten over injuries and he works so hard. And I think that's a lot of why he's so resilient when he does get hurt. And I think he also wants to be great. And I think that's really important too, to being, to being resilient. Um, so I guess I, if, if I'd never been hurt, I think if anybody never gets hurt, they'll, yeah. they'll do better than if they do. But I, I mean, I, I felt like I got a lot of opportunities. I felt like the Pirates gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, so I I guess when I look back over things, I think between the opportunities that I got and the fairly limited injuries that I had, I think I fared with things that were somewhat out of my control. I think I fared better than, than most. Now, was the injury – uh, why you started to experiment with the old school windup, or was that something that you just did before or after that for a different reason? I don't know that it was, but maybe only because I had two really bad seasons. Uh, Cause I know in 2012, my first year, not with the pirates. Um, I didn't go on the DL all year, but my arm didn't feel very good most of that year. And I just didn't quite have my stuff. And then 2013, when I started doing the delivery um, my arm felt really good for the the first time in a couple of years. So I think the fact that I had 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 two bad seasons 
was related to why I did it. And, and the injury might have played a little bit of a part in that. But um, so when Joe Kerrigan was the pitching coach when I first got to Pittsburgh, and he had at one point, I think it was halfway through my first full season, he felt like I was a little too stiff. And so we had tried a few different things. Um, and we started, he suggested that I start going over my head, which is, is something a lot of pitchers do. Um, and I started doing that and it just made me a little more fluid and I, I saw much better results. Um, and I think whether it was the actual physical motion going over my head or just kind of mentally the reset of now I'm doing something different and I have success and I start to think that as long as I go over my head, I'm going to do well. And it just, it's kind of a natural confidence builder. Um, sometimes resetting something can, can help you restart your confidence. Whatever reason I started doing a lot better. Uh, but Joe Kerrigan, when I played catch suggested that I swing my arms, like I ended up doing off the mound, but he never, he never suggested I do it off the mound, but he thought it would just help me loosen up playing catch. Um, so I was in spring training 2013 with the nationals. And at some point I just started swinging my arms and the ball just started coming out much better. And so I just went with it. The, the, um, I was just, I was, a I was invited to major league spring training, but I was on a minor league deal. Wasn't a huge part of the team. They kind of just left me alone and let me do my thing. And also I, I had, I had some major league experience at that point. So they were, um, often they'll, they'll trust you a little more to, to experiment with things if you're an older player. Um, but they just kind of left me alone and I didn't make the team, but I went to triple a and kept, kept with that windup and was having really good results. Um, and I felt like in terms of the way I pitched, I thought that was one of my best seasons, um, in 2013 and pitching that way. Um, and then the next year I got hurt again, but, <laughs> But I pitched that way uh, in 2015 too, and and I felt like the ball came out really well. It just it seemed for me, I think it it um, it reduced some of the tension that I would have in in my body, and I, I think that was important for me. But Joe Kerrigan, um, I would say, inspired me to to consider that as an option. And then when it came time to actually implement it, it was just something that I tried and, and seemed to work really well. So. The final thing I kind of want to get into here is something that started from a first pitch being thrown at PNC Park. Uh, The head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture threw out a first pitch at a Pirates game, and it led to you getting a pretty big internship. Can you tell uh, the listeners how – about more about this story and how it all kind of played out. Sure. So I, I uh, often would volunteer, at least if there was somebody interested in throwing out the first pitch, volunteer to go catch it. And Secretary Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, he had been governor of Iowa, and then he was at the time he was um, the Secretary of Agriculture. <clears throat> so he was throwing out the first pitch, and I thought it would be great to uh, to go out and catch it and just get to say hi to him. Um, and so I did, and 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 just talked to him briefly. And that was shortly before the All-Star break. And over the All-Star break, I was visiting friends in D.C. and started thinking, just got this idea in my head, wouldn't it be cool to do an internship here in Department of Agriculture would, would really interest me. Um, and so I, I asked the Pirates if I could contact the person who set up Secretary Vilsack's first pitch. And um, so they gave me, gave me his 
um, email. I emailed him, sent him my resume, told him things I was interested in. And they said they'd be happy to, to have me to do an internship. Um, so I ended up being there for about 10 weeks. I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was a great experience. I, a lot of people that I went to college with interned in New York, New York City in finance um, during college in the summer and then ended up going to work there. To me, that being able to do an internship or a job in Washington D.C. I think is so much more interesting. It's just there's so much oh, yeah. going on there. Um, one thing I noticed when I was on the Nationals, people are just in a better mood. I think um, I think things are they're really important, but I think it's it's less stressful and more interesting. Um, but I I met some interesting people. There was a, a project um, called National well a, a program called National animal identification system that was fairly controversial in the agricultural industry at the time. It was something that um, it was kind of a trade-off. It, it was implemented to help with animal health and safety in the event that a disease broke out where they could more quickly track down animals that might, might've been infected, mm-hmm. um, which was, is a great thing. It, uh, it came at a fairly high cost on the, uh, the producers or the, the people who had owned the, the animals of different types that it, that it impacted. Um, so it was just a question of whether the costs were worth the upside. Well, isn't, uh, isn't like, wouldn't that study have been beneficial, you know, like this year with the disease that just kind of ruined our country? Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because so, um, mad cow disease prior mm-hmm. to my internship had been had been a big thing and i think that that started this program this nace the national animal identification system i think it was in response um to mad cow disease and and some other things but i think that really kind of got some momentum going for it but it'll be interesting to see what suggestions and programs come about because of coronavirus um i'm sure there will there've already been some and will be more. Um, nice. And then the, their questions, I mean, and people are going to disagree. Well, even, yeah, but it is. Yes. So it is. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen there. Some people wear, wear masks and some won't. And you have just, I mean, you had kind of similar vets wanted to, veterinarians wanted to have this program and, and some, some ranchers, uh, a lot of ranchers did not, especially smaller ones because a lot of the costs that they, that you would incur could not be, distributed over a lot of cattle if you if you had a smaller number um but it was it was interesting and i i um was able to work with a lot of people that were involved at a high level in implementing the program and and kind of making decisions on it um so i really enjoyed it and dc was such a cool place to be um so did I did I read that you got to play basketball a pickup basketball game on the South Lawn on the court that Obama had installed? <laughs> so I I played in the Department of Interior. Okay. Uh, they they had a court in there, and I've actually been in the court. There's so the Supreme Court building has a basketball court up top, and I I went in there too. But that was kind of separate. I think that was when I was on the Nationals that I I got to go up there. But that was um, one of my good friends from college uh, clerked that the Supreme court. And so he, uh, took me for a tour and I got to go up there, but I, I played in a weekly game at the department of the interior. Um, when I was, when I was interning. Yeah. You, you ever shoot around with Barry O? 
No. No? <laughs> so I, I did see that you got to meet Michelle Obama, though, during your internship, yes, right? That's right. So we, uh, I went, so I, so Secretary Vilsack um, took me on a couple things with him. And, uh, and one was, I got to go, we went to a, an elementary school. So, um, so I guess First Lady Obama's, uh, one of her at least really big initiatives was, um, was on, uh, children welfare and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, in education of children. And so one of those, a component of that was healthy eating. And um, so there's an elementary school where they had planted a garden and they were trying to uh, teach kids about, about where their food came from and also about eating well. And so she had a, um, I guess an, an engagement there where she asked questions of the teachers and principal and, and different people. And I got to go and, and kind of just sit in the background and watch. And then I got to meet her at the end and she, she went to Princeton too. So I just, got to tell her that I also went there. And so just, we had something to talk briefly about, but, um, but I was really impressed watching her that day and the way that she interacted. I mean, all, all politicians also often get, get a bad name and um, it's just not really just wanting to get reelected and that's it. But I, um, I felt like she was really cared about the people that she was interacting with and trying to help them. Um, so I, I came away from that pretty impressed with her. And that was, that was a really cool opportunity to get to go do, do that. And I'm, I'm glad that I reached out to, to secretary Bill Sack to try to make that happen because I think in our position as baseball players, a lot of people are interested in giving us opportunities to, to do interesting things, but you have to ask. And, and some, some players ask and, and a lot don't. And when you're done playing, it's not as cool to get to hang out with you. So it's, it's uh it's it's something that that I I think more players would benefit from if they if there are things that interest them to to reach out to to people involved in those industries to see if they can can kind of get in while they're still playing. I have two questions uh, to wrap this up. One, do you have any future interest in maybe getting into politics at all? I not that I don't think so. I think no. I think doing something in baseball is much more likely. Okay. So that, that is, even though I'm not doing much in analytics right now with baseball, that that's, um, that's probably something that's fairly likely that I would do at some point, but I I don't think politics is very likely. I mean, things change as you, as you grow and get older, but, um, it's, it's not, when I interned there, it wasn't, it wasn't an interest of mine and I, it's still, still not. Hey, I mean, if you look at the ages of the two guys who just ran for president, you have a couple right. decades to change your mind. So, right. uh, And my last question for you is a trivia question. In 2010, the Sporting News named you the third smartest athlete. Uh, can you name me the two guys who were put ahead of you on that list? Do you know them? I do. Craig Breslow, and then I think his name was Myron Roll. It, it was the, the football – is that right? Uh, yep. Right? Yeah, the football player at Florida State. Wow. Yeah, I, yeah no, I, I, I was, yeah, I was very familiar with that article when it came out. Do you feel like you were snubbed or do you think three is a fair spot? No, I, I mean, I was glad to be on the list. So. Happy to be on the podium. You got the yeah. bronze, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, Ross, uh, do you have any social media? Is there anywhere anyone could keep up with you or catch up with you at, or are you uh, just kind of laying low? We have, um, we have a Facebook account for our, for our cows. I think, and we have, I think my wife, post on instagram too i think it's just under rocky no longhorns 
All right. But that's, so, yeah. Not, I, have, I, don't, I don't actually, I don't put thoughts out there like a lot of people. Hey, that's probably better <laughs> off, right? So be sure to check, uh, check out the business on their social media and uh, leave comments below on what they thought. I, Ross, I had a great time talking with yeah, you and uh, looking forward to, you know, keeping in touch and seeing how things go. And I, I'm, I'll probably still expect you to be president here in about 40 years, <laughs> so regardless of what you think. Yeah, well, sounds good. Well, thank you. I mean, this was fun to get to to think about. I really enjoyed my time in Pittsburgh. It's fun to think through some of those memories. And it's nice to still someone still be interested in talking to me after being done playing. Absolutely. <laughs>